Audi. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. As the author of one of my favorite books, Les Parisiennes, How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s, and Seba loves writing about women, writers and fighters. Her journalism career saw her reporting on John Paul Getty's kidnap in Rome in the 1970s, took in New York in the edgy 80s, and has taken her everywhere from the Mexico desert to Minsk in Belarus and to the concentration camps. The brilliant author, biographer and journalist Anne Seba is on the Big Travel Podcast. I loved reading your book, Les Parisiennes. I read it last year. Oh, good. And it's been one of those books that I've been obsessed with. And I've actually mentioned it quite a lot on the podcast. Um, oh. Shall I start with the book? No, do you know what? I'm going to start with your early experience because I've been sitting here doing um, my research on you. You've got a wonderful uh, career history of journalism and uh, a strong interest in fighters and writers when it came to women yeah so uh, starting off uh, very early on in the BBC World Service so why don't we start back there where did your in- interest come from well I had a toy typewriter when I was eight and I just always wanted to be a journalist I had visions of me saying um you know from some desperate war war spot. This is Anne Rubenstein, as my maiden name was. This is Anne Rubenstein bringing you the news from some terrible trench, um, wherever it was. So I read history at King's College and the world's BBC World Service was in Bush House in those days. And I just walked across in my lunch hour with the arrogance and confidence of youth and said, you know, have you got a job for me? And they said, yes, you can come in and start filing tapes in the Arabic service. Well, you know, of course I didn't speak Arabic, but to get a foothold in the BBC was just amazing. And then when I applied to Reuters, which is just down the road in Fleet Street, and they needed to know what experience I had, I said, well, I've had a job at the BBC World Service. And it was just the right time. They were obviously looking for a woman. They hadn't dared chance their arm on taking a woman before. But this was 1972. And they thought, well, I guess we'd better have a woman. And I wasn't even Oxbridge either. You know, King's College London, that was really scraping the barrel as far as Reuters was concerned. Um, so uh, within that sort of little triangle of King's College, Bush House and Reuters in Fleet Street, I had the most amazing start to my career and I just, I couldn't believe I was being paid for something so exciting. And, you know, I went to Reuters speaking French, German um, and Russian, and they told me that all those places were far too dangerous for a woman. So they were going to send me to Rome and I had to learn Italian. Well, I mean, quite why they thought Rome was safer for a 21-year-old I'm sure it wasn't, but it was it was just fabulous to to be 21 and living in Rome with a job 
in, in an office that was just below the Trevi Fountains and we used to sit outside for lunch every day. It, it was the most glamorous, glorious start because, of course, Rome in 1970 was full of film stars. They were doing a lot of filming there. So I met Roman Polanski almost on my first weekend. That turned into a nude swimming party and I quickly left. I was a very repressed English girl, not, not a woman. And when I walked into the office and told them that I'd met Roman Polanski on my first weekend, they said to me, well, did you get an interview? <laughs> to tell them. No, it was a nude swimming party. I couldn't quite cope with that. And from Roman Polanski to Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, so it went. It just was far too glorious and glamorous a beginning for what I subsequently learned was a hard slog. But, you know, just aren't I lucky to start like that? It's an incredible way to start your journalism career. It must have been uh, Rome in the early 70s, must have been like walking onto a film set. I mean, it's, it's almost film set-esque now. Yes, it, it absolutely was. And I had to cover everything from tennis competitions. I mean, I met fabulous tennis stars. If you remember Tom Ocker, I mean, I, I love tennis. So I chose that as one of the sports I wanted to do. But I was also sent to Sardinia to cover the one-ton cup yacht race. And I knew absolutely nothing about sailing. But I went up in the Aga Khan's helicopter to monitor the race. Um, I'm trying to think what other high spots. I mean, the, the big story while I was in Rome was the terrible and dramatic story of the kidnap of young um, Getty's ear. And so the office decided that perhaps if I went to the police station, I'd be able to get a story that the men couldn't get. And what I really take away from that is that in London, nobody really seemed to think that Rome was a serious place. Rome was a place where governments changed and there weren't real stories. Uh, of course, governments changed, but it was rife with banditry and mafia. And, and the story of, of the Getty era was so, so tragic. And when I saw the amazing film recently, um, I, I just thought, why on earth hadn't I written that story? Because Rome in the 70s was... It wasn't quite a backwater. I mean, they were building a metro under um, the the centre of Rome, which, of course, when you've got a, a centre that's so full of antiquity is, is an extraordinary thing to do up the Via del Corso. It, it was a serious place because the communists and the Reds were, were still struggling for, for power. Um, and, you know, Europe, the, the heart of Europe was being fought in that area. But in London, it just wasn't taken seriously. But, but for me to understand journalism was absolutely fantastic. Journalism with a bit of sport and film stars thrown in. I'm just thinking about that John Paul Getty III, I think he was, wasn't he, that, that story. Yeah. And actually thinking of Rome and, and other places at, at the time, there's almost this, um, this sort of dual 
world, this sort of dichotomy between the the travelers and the, the foreigners and the rich Europeans that travel to say, I, I tell you what, it's because I'm watching this series um, called The Serpent at the moment on the BBC about oh. um, backpacker mur- murders in the 60s and 70s in the Far East. But it's making me think about how, how travelers and, and people and, and expats, if you want to call them that, that go in, and live and travel places, sort of have a different lifestyle on, on the surface. So John Paul Getty had this incredible hippie lifestyle. You know, it was funded, obviously, by his rich family. He was going to all these parties and having fun and doing drugs. But operating at the same time is, of course, as we know, the underbelly of places like Rome, the mafia, the corruption, which still, to a certain extent, goes on today. And uh, that must have been a very, very interesting place to work as a journalist, particularly in that time. Well, absolutely were. And there were a number of terrorist incidents because, um, you know, there were a lot of Middle Eastern um, travellers to Rome who thought it was a safe place. And they certainly found a receptive audience. But but it was a seriously worrying place. There were many strands. The, The female journalist who took me under her wing was an Italian Jewish um, journalist called Tullia Zevi. I mean, she was absolutely in in the heart of Italian journalists, and both her children were in prison at one time because they were extremely left wing. So they were picked up by the government, and that really gave me an insight into how real this was. And I don't know if you saw um, the the news the the other day. There's also the Vatican, of course, that's playing a role. So there's this deep Catholic strand. And, um, you know, by the by, most Italian men just assumed immediately, oh, young blonde English girl coming to live in Rome. Well, she's obviously here for only one thing. So the British had a, a dreadful reputation and and the, the, the sort of Italian playboy at the same time took advantage of that. But what I was going to say was, was the Vatican was still um, controlling many attitudes to how people live their lives. It, it had this extraordinary strength, which of course I wasn't prepared for. I didn't really understand the strength of a state within a state. But um, I don't know if you saw in the paper the other day, there was a story of an 88-year-old Holocaust supporter who suddenly was visited by the Pope, who found the Pope on her doorstep. And I, and she'd been living in Rome ever since she escaped from Auschwitz and, and had embarked on the death march and her mother had been killed. I mean, she, she was a child when, when she ended the war with all that tragedy. Why has it taken until 2021 for the Pope to come and visit her? So there was this strong aspect of, of the Vatican on, on the one hand. There were refugees, Jewish refugees. There's, there's a very ancient Jewish ghetto in Rome, which is absolutely beautiful. So there was all of that, plus the um, Middle Eastern terrorists who were make it, taking advantage of the strong left-wing communist aspect. I mean, it was an, uh, I know it's a cliche to say it was a melting pot. And I was too young at 21, really, to make sense of all of that. I could see it was going on. I was terrified of getting involved in this film star louche world, because I knew that I could. But as a young English girl, I, I, I just would be taken advantage of. But how exciting it was. And 
it's taken me many years to process this post-war world. I mean, 1970, it was 25 years since the end of the war and people still had very vivid memories. And I kick myself for not really taking greater advantage of, of all of that because there were British writers living there and I could have really understood it if I were just a little bit older with more experience to process this extraordinary life that was going on in Rome. Anyway, it was a great place to start. So you met Elizabeth Taylor, didn't you? Manage to blag your way into a restaurant to speak to her uh, throughout I, the I met everyone Elizabeth clamoring outside. Taylor. Yes. I mean, my boss just decided that none of the men would get a chance interviewing Elizabeth Taylor because she was Headline news, the breakup of her marriage to Richard Burton, which was on, off, on, off. And this amazingly beautiful woman was in a restaurant. We knew exactly where she was in Trestavery. And he said, why don't you go and try and get an interview? And, and the Metro D just let me in and I sat on a banquette with her. I mean, unbelievable memory that. It's, it's one of those memories that you never forget. And then when I came back, to London to telescope a few years. I, I spent about six years at Reuters, but I did get married and I did get pregnant by the time I was 26. I mean, ridiculously young as you think about it now. But having been the first woman that Reuters took, I was the first woman that Reuters sacked because <laughs> they didn't think you could be a pregnant foreign correspondent or at least a mother and a foreign correspondent. And I thought my world was ending, but I started writing books. And one of the first books that I wrote, and how lucky I was, was a biography of the writer Enid Bagnold, who wrote National Velvet. And the reason that I was lucky to get access to those papers, or one of the reasons, I think, was that Enid Bagnold's husband, Sir Roderick Jones, was the chairman of Reuters. So Reuters had the most amazing archive. And because I didn't sue them when they got rid of me, I mean, nowadays you'd sue them, of course, for getting rid of you because you're about to have a child. But I, I played along and I was very nice and lived in New York. And while I was in New York, Enid died and I asked for access to these papers. And Enid is most famous for being the author of National Velvet. Well, who was the star of National Velvet but Elizabeth Taylor? And this made Taylor's career. She desperately wanted this part because she was English before she went to live in America and she'd grown up riding and she was a very talented young jockey aged 12 and she desperately wanted this role and she made herself grow three inches if such a thing is possible <laughs> in order to get the part. So I then was lucky to interview Elizabeth Taylor a second time. That that's my my Elizabeth Taylor story. Um, sadly, I don't have one. But um, I was thinking about uh, you. You moved to New York after Italy. Now New York was a, a different city back in the. So I'm guessing we're talking mid late seventies, maybe early eighties yes. when you were there. It was a very different city. Uh, I grew up thinking America was this wonderful magical place, but New York was had an edge that it, you know, that, oh God, I need to. And how. I, I went there in 1978 with, with a baby and everybody would say to me, well, tell me, Anne, what do you do for a living? And I wanted to say, actually, I'm a mother. I'm trying to feed my baby. I've just been sacked from Reuters and I'm fine. You know, I, I want 
to find my way. But people weren't interested in you. You know, you either had something to contribute and you were interesting. And as you say, AG. So I quickly realized if, if I was going to enjoy New York at all, I had to work. And I had many other English women friends and you couldn't get a green card. It was really hard for the wives to work. And there were many of them miserable and we saw marriages break up. So again, how lucky I was as a journalist because of freedom of information, they can't stop you being a journalist. So I immediately wrote stories about life as a mother in the Big Apple. I could do stories for, for UK newspapers and magazines. And I also wrote my first book while I was there. And my first book was about antique needlework, long story. But as long as you've got a first book and then I could get an agent. And then I wrote about Enid Bagnold. So, but being in New York was so amazing. It gave me an anchoring to understand. And most of my subsequent biographies have been about half American women or American women. I, I just wasn't frightened of New York. We traveled around America and went to the West Coast and New Orleans. I mean, you know, a smattering of the surface, of course. But for my most recent book, which is about Ethel Rosenberg, it's coming out in June, I, I felt comfortable going back to New York and spending time there. I mean, I'm a journalist at heart. I, I'd better fess up straight away. Although I write, I, I consider really serious books that are historically important and footnoted. I always search for the human element. I long to find an excuse to travel, to meet real people. I look for the interview angle for the real people. And I'm a footsteps biographer. I need to go to the places that matter. And with Ethel, to spend a day at Sing Sing Prison, where she had two years in solitary confinement, was so important to me. I imagine the Americans have, or they put at my disposal anyway, a, prison, a federal prison officer who takes responsibility for the history of the place. So he devoted a whole day to showing me around this extraordinary place, Sing Sing. It's along the Hudson. It's called Sing Sing because there was a, a Native American tribe called the Sink Sinks. It's up high on a white cliff, so nobody can escape. It's been used for lots of, of films, but it is still a working prison. For those of us who don't know her story, what was she in prison for? What, what okay. was her story? Yes, I've jumped ahead. I shouldn't have done. So Ethel Rosenberg was arrested in 1950 at the height of the McCarthy era and fear of communism, fear, one should really say hysteria. And she was accused of conspiracy to commit espionage. She wasn't accused actually of being a spy because there was no evidence against her at all. Her husband, it turned out, was a recruiter of aspiring. So conspiracy just means that she had conversations with her husband. Well, of course she did. So it was really easy to accuse her, therefore, of treason, although the charge was never treason, but treason carries with it a death sentence. 
So both Ethel and her husband, Julius, were in prison, but separate prisons for three years while appeals went on. But eventually she was electrocuted. She was 37. She had two young children of 10 and six and multiple miscarriages of justice in her trial and no evidence against her. So Ethel had one year in the women's prison in Manhattan and two years in Sing Sing in solitary confinement. And she was the first American woman to be killed for any crime other than murder. And I'm writing about her on the 70th anniversary of her trial. Her two sons are still alive in their 70s. They've both led full lives as professors. And I feel passionately about restoring her story to center stage. I mean, it just was a, a real Cold War tragedy. So anyway, I visited a day in the prison. I spent a day at her school on the Lower East Side and looked at tenements where she grew up. I traveled to Minsk because that's where her family came from. Before she was Rosenberg, she was green glass. And to be able to go to Minsk in Belarus, where the Jewish population has been completely wiped out after the Holocaust, is also just a complete privilege. I mean, I went before the latest shenanigans with the political scene, but it was quite clear that Belarus is totally in Putin's aura. It's, it's one of those East European countries that has tried to westernize and failed because the money comes from the Russian Federation. And so without that money, they can't seem to do anything independently. And people are really fearful. I had a guide, of course, the whole time, but nobody really is prepared to talk to you about the political situation. And the other place I went to for Ethel's story is um, in New Mexico, Los Alamos, I mean, why else would anyone have a reason to go to Los Alamos, which is in the most beautiful, um, remote mountain region of America, of, of New Mexico? And I stayed in Santa Fe, which has an annual opera um, in the summer, not in times of COVID, but I would love to go there. And Santa Fe and, and Albuquerque and Los Alamos, I mean, just to tread in the footsteps of where all these famous um, atomic scientists worked. Los Alamos is famous because that's where they developed the atomic bomb and Ethel's brother worked there. And that's the source of where all the accusations against Ethel and Julius came from. So scientists like J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was also accused of being a communist and had his security clearance removed in the wake of the Rosenberg trial. I mean, it's it's so important to try and convey that atmosphere of fear after the war. During the war, Russia had been our ally. And immediately after the war, I mean, literally almost as soon as it was over, suddenly Russia was our enemy, or at least America's enemy. And they were terrified that the communists would have access to atomic knowledge. The Chinese had access to it in 1949. The Chinese had become communists. So this fear that any communist was our enemy immediately, and you know we had to find the source of how on earth 
this information that they'd worked on in Los Alamos had leaked to the Russians. Nobody could believe that the Russians had the brain power to come up with their own insight into how to make atomic weapons. So it's funny that fear and mistrust is still ongoing now, isn't it? I was just listening to you and sort of paralleling almost that the, uh, the, the the recent, quite recent um, uh, issues with the Russians and Donald Trump and the election, and that mistrust is is still ongoing. The the resonance is extraordinary, and I referred to multiple miscarriages of justice in her trial. So the main one was that Ethel's brother, who had worked at Los Alamos, accused Ethel of typing up his notes. He just completely made it up. It was a lie. Who was the lawyer who persuaded Ethel's brother to lie? A man called um, Roy Cohn. And Cohn was a friend. Well, Cohn was more than a friend. He became the lawyer for Donald Trump. So the resonance is not just, you know, isn't it similar? There is a direct line between Cohn teaching Trump that there's no absolute truth, that, you know, you have to manipulate the truth. Um, and so Cohn taught Trump, and we're just emerging from this terrifying Trumpian era. So it, it's not just, isn't it similar? It is absolutely a direct line that the danger of when a government gives way to hysteria and abjures the need for truth and real evidence and hard facts. Ethel would never be allowed to be convicted today. I can see now looking at your career, you know, from from this standpoint, however many years on, I can see how you've become so passionate about, uh, as we talked about, fighters and writers in terms of women, being the first uh, woman graduate trainee at Reuters, being, I I can only imagine, one of very, very few women in a very male-dominated space in journalism, and then fighting your way into New York when you've got a, a tiny baby, which it makes anyone question their identity anyway, let alone someone who at that point had just been sacked and, and again moved to New York, which has that sort of male energy as well. And uh, I think that sort of brings me nicely round to, well, actually, before you wrote Le Parisien, you wrote a, a book about Willis Simpson. So I can see where your where your, your passion for these strong, th- these female characters have come from. Um, yeah, maybe we should touch on Wallace first before we go to Paris. What was the interest in, in Wallace Simpson? Well, the real link in my work is 1936. I mean, thank you for that amazingly generous account of my career. I didn't see it like that myself. I just feel as if I've sort of hopped from one to another and just incredible good luck and good fortune. And I didn't mean only to write about women. I mean, I think men have extraordinary stories to tell, but I do think that male stories have generally been told. And one of the reasons that I love writing about women is because their stories haven't, whether they're mothers or wives or daughters, they've often been absolutely critical helpmates or soulmates or whatever to, to a man. So um, at university, I, I studied 1936. I mean, that was in France, that, that was my energy. So 1936 is the one year 
when I think the world could have stopped Hitler. There was the Spanish Civil War in France. There was the Popular Front with Leon Blum. Um, but Hitler marched into the Rhineland, tearing up the Treaty of Versailles, and nobody dared stop him. And in England, you could argue we weren't ready. I mean, the military needed to be built up. We were hoping for appeasement, that there wouldn't be a war. But the other reason we didn't do anything is because 1936 was completely from January to December taken up with this real constitutional crisis. Um, and the abdication is often called the abdication crisis. I think the abdication was the solution to the crisis. But not only was the a constitutional crisis, we were faffing around with the dominions, as they were so-called, worried that the empire would break up because of a king and his morals. Could he marry a woman who was twice divorced? So I have always been fascinated by this story. But actually, the book before that was Jenny Churchill, who's Winston's American mother. And I remember when I delivered that and I said to my agent, you know, J Jenny was misunderstood. Jenny was called a mongrel. Jenny was really attacked for being American and trying to get on in the world. But I said the American woman who really was misunderstood and who never got the British establishment herself was Wallace Simpson. And my agent immediately said, oh, well, that's your next book. And I said to her, but fine, um, I'm not going to write a book if there's nothing new. And she said, oh, I know you'll find something new. So I signed a contract before I knew. I just thought there must, it, 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 there must be a revisionist angle to this story. You know, Wallace probably wasn't a very nice or sweet or saintly woman, but was she really a Nazi, a gold digger, a whore? You know, all the things she was accused of. And I started my research looking on Wikipedia. I mean, that wonderful tool and discovered that actually Ernest Simpson, her second husband, had been married four times. Well, everyone thinks of him as the very British bowler hatted, you know, pinstripe suit, correct man. I couldn't believe he'd been married four times. And by his third wife, he had a son who now goes by the name of Aaron Solomons and is a freediver in Mexico. Well, this has to ring alarm bells for any biographer. You know, Ernest Simpson having a son called Aaron Solomons. What is a freediver? I didn't even know. But literally, I spent a day on the Internet researching freediving. I found they had a website. And on the freediver's website was a picture of this man approaching 70. He looked a bit like Gandhi in a yogic pose. And within an hour, I'd found a phone number for him. So this is why I say I'm a journalist at heart. I mean, who'd have thought that the abdication story would take you to Mexico and freediving? I didn't know at that point. It's such an extreme sport. And Aaron Solomons is one of the world's leading exponents and teachers. And he was working in Mexico in this extraordinary place, the Baja California Sur, right at the tip of Mexico. So I just spoke to him and said, please, can I come and meet you? And at first he said, well, how the hell have you got hold of me? You know, how do you know my story? I've never talked about it. And I explained and I kept him talking. And I think he was a bit intrigued. And I persuaded him that I could come out next week. Really, I was mad. I just went to stay with this strange man on a whim that probably he had something to tell me. 
And I spent a week there and he took me to his desert camp. I mean, it's the most extraordinary place. It's where John Steinbeck wrote The Pearl. Hardly anybody lives. And we we lived outside in this desert camp, me and this man I'd never met before. He took a machete to kill snakes, he said. We took enough water for four days. But here's the killer. My phone lost its signal. There was no phone signal there. And I, I'm a mother of two daughters. You know, I tell them not to do stupid things like this. And here was I. I really thought I'd never make it home. But of course, you know, I did. And I could see the headlines. Foolish biographer <laughs> in search of a story killed in the Mexican desert. By and, and, Wallace and, Simpson's long lost stepson, I'm guessing. That's well, his... <laughs> precisely. And he did have stories. I mean, he was born in 39. So it was he never knew Wallace personally, but he gave me loads of addresses. And as a result, I looked up every single one of the uh, relatives and step relatives that he gave me. And one of them turned out to have 15 unpublished letters between Wallace and Ernest. So, you know, it, it was worth the trip. And I, in a way, I'm proudest of that book of anything I've written, because these letters really change history. They show that Wallace was writing to Ernest Simpson, the husband that she publicly was accusing of adultery and hating, but actually who was the one man she understood. They show that she didn't want to go ahead with the wedding, that she derided and humiliated the king. She called him Peter Pan because he was the boy who'd never grow up. And it was all thanks to this bonkers trip I made to Mexico. And when I came back, there was Mexican swine flu. You probably don't remember, but no. I do, because it was a pandemic a bit like we're going through now. And I didn't think I'd be allowed back into the country. But, you know, I pulled a few strings. I didn't have a temperature and I had to go into isolation. And I did get back and I did find the letters and I did publish the book. And how lucky, again, that I've had a chance to see a part of Mexico that you wouldn't see on holiday. I mean, I think that's really the point of why I feel so fortunate that I've been to these places with a purpose and off you go to Mexico I, I, to speak to the free diver. I absolutely love that. I really do. Um, so Le Parisienne, it was, uh, is, it's, its full title is Le Parisienne, How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s. And this was a book I read last year and it brought up so many different emotions in me. It's one that um, it was, it's beautifully written. It's obviously historical and accurate, but it, it feels like a novel the way it's written. You know, you re get really immersed in it. But also it really made me question myself. And I've, I've always been a little bit obsessed of, of, of your wartime Europe, actually both wars, um, Europe in, in both the wars, particularly the, the Second World War and the resistance and the, the you know, the, the incredible acts of, of, of bravery and, and heartache and everything that everyone went through um, but it did make me question myself and, and it's nothing I'd, I'd really considered before is that if you were in uh, occupied France and the Nazis are there amongst you you know 
would you collaborate? What would you do? Would you become a member of the resistance? Would you just try and get on with your life? Would you find yourself sleeping with some nice, because there must have been some nice Nazis, if that's not an oxymoron. There must have been some handsome, dashing men. What would you do? It's really interesting. The German officers who were sent to Paris, at any rate at the beginning, were deliberately chosen for being the handsome, charming, cultured type who not only had access to food and nylon stockings, but, you know, you could live very well. But there were some people who decided, and women I met, that you just don't let yourself get into that situation. They are the enemy and they've been the enemy twice over. They were three times in 1870, but particularly memories were fresh of Les Bosch in World War One. So many women just did not go into the restaurants in the first place. They just kept away. And perhaps their way of resisting was looking smart and elegant and keeping their sense of soul because French women weren't allowed to wear uniform. Of course, that was part of the armistice deal. So they couldn't declare that they were an enemy. And some of them just kept out of the way, but others did much more. They got involved perhaps with a Catholic priest and they delivered political tact. Perhaps they helped downed airmen, multiple small acts, because here's the thing, actually to join the resistance or one of the resistance groups was very difficult for women. You had to abandon your child, perhaps abandon your elderly parents. You had to give everything up. So for a a middle-aged woman or, or a woman between sort of 20 and 60, it was very, very hard to join the resistance. So very few of them were recognized after the war because they couldn't prove that they'd been registered. They hadn't carried weapons. However, A few did, and some of them paid the price. One of the heroines in that book was Odette Fabius, and and the price she paid, um, I think her story is particularly interesting, but the price she paid was that her elderly father was picked up and was sent to Auschwitz. Not only that, her 11-year-old daughter was probably scarred by the fact that her mother left the family, went down to Marseille, joined the resistance, had a passionate affair with a communist Corsican trade union leader. So, you know, it was a difficult choice. But I think one needs to say that war heightens one's responses. Certainly, risk-taking becomes exciting. I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that people did it because of the excitement or glamour. But I think one has to accept that wartime does cut through some of that. It, it makes choices very black and white. On the other hand, I think for most women who had family responsibilities, they could not formally join a resistance group. So they failed to get any of the awards or be recognized after the war. And what I've tried to do in that book is show these small acts, because I think the multiple small acts cumulatively meant that women really did play a much bigger role than they've been allowed to understand afterwards because they weren't rewarded. And there were some, and here's back to your issue of the choice, and I too kept saying to myself, what would I have done? I mean, that's the real issue and it's impossible to answer. But I think if you were not married or at least you weren't a mother and you didn't have elderly parents, again, the choice was more black and white. So there are some teenage resistors who behaved in an extraordinary way. 
and often were pushed beyond the bounds that it would seem possible simply by having a downed airman in your house for a few days or if you delivered a political tract. If you were caught, you'd be tortured until you gave away the location of the printing press. So, so these small acts were incredibly dangerous or just delivering food to someone who was in hiding. All those things were absolutely crucial, but you weren't recognized after the war. And that, I think, is why I wanted to write this book, because I felt that there was a certain view, a one-dimensional view, that French women all collaborated in England. Because in England, you know, we fought. Women joined the WAFs or the Wrens or what have you. I think some French women did collaborate. Of course, you know, there were about 200,000 Franco-German babies. But in my view, sleeping with a German is not quite the same as collaborating. I know it was treated as a crime, collaboration horizontale, and you often were punished with degradation nationale after the war. In my view, collaboration means giving away a secret. It means giving away information, really helping the Germans Simply doing your job as a singer, a dancer, an actor, I don't think is collaborating. And I certainly don't think sleeping with a German for a loaf of bread is collaborating. And that's really the question I had to answer. If I had a starving child, would I sleep with a German? And I have to say to you, yes, I would. You just do what you do to, to get by and survive, survive and ensure your friends and family survive, whether that's continuing to perform or to serve drinks mm. or to or fraternize or like you said you know end up uh, doing things to, to feed your family yeah. and some of the stories that really stood out to me were actually the British women who uh, came to Paris and it's been a year or so since I've read it and I don't unfortunately have my copy it's in Spain um, yeah. but um, to refer to but as I recall there were, there were young British women who, for whatever reason, family reasons, spoke French, who were parachuted into France to make their way to Paris and work for the resistance or perform there were some sort of task. 39 SOE women, special operations executive, and uh, the life expectancy of a wireless operator in Paris was about six weeks. But that was what just before the Allied invasion when Churchill realised that they had to have wireless operators, they had to bolster the French spirit to resist. And you couldn't send a young man to Paris because about two million French, young Frenchmen of fighting age had been taken prisoner of war. So Paris was a feminized city. You couldn't have a young man of fighting age. He'd draw attention to himself immediately. And you're absolutely right. These women were incredibly brave and performed fantastically important work. But after the war, you see, Paris was liberated eight months before the end of the war in the summer of 44. And really, Parisians obviously loved peace. And they didn't really want to be reminded of the fact that the rest of the war was still fighting and lots of people were still in the camps. But de Gaulle, from then on, wanted to get rid of the Allied forces and SOE. SOE is hardly known in France because it wasn't talked about. De Gaulle's absolute cri de coeur was Paris libéré par elle-même. You know, Frenchmen did it themselves. And uh, I think France has had a struggle coming to terms over the ensuing decades in recognizing that 
actually France was not a victim country. France played a role in deporting Jews with French buses and French police. And France was liberated by the Allies. Of course, there were French working with them. But he got rid of all these SOE people, the brave women that you mentioned, and they weren't recognised at all. Whose story really stands out to you from your, your, your research for the book? Oh, gosh, so many. I think probably Odette Fabius, because she ended up in Ravensbrück, or, or Genevieve de Gaulle, the niece of the general who also was in Ravensbrück. I mean, the French women were sent to this unbelievable camp just an hour outside Berlin. I mean, that's another place I, I had to go to, although it's not actually in Paris. Um, the French women were sent in the last few months of the war, which is why so many of them survived, because you cannot imagine surviving in this place. I was collecting actuality for a radio broadcast, so I had a, a big sort of tape recorder on my shoulder. And I went in November. So you, you get the train from Berlin to this place called Furstenberg, and then the women were made to walk to Ravensbrück. And it was so cold because these Baltic icy winds come in that I had to take off my sheepskin gloves to operate the tape recorder. And I remember my hands went instantly blue and frozen. I could barely operate the knobs. And I do remember thinking to myself, my God, here am I in a down coat with sheepskin gloves. And within the first hour, I'm feeling the cold. And these women had to stand on the appel platz, which I went to. I mean, I, I did the walk because I, I needed to experience as much as I could of how ghastly it was. Um, and these women were often on the appel platz from sort of three or four in the morning. And they nonetheless survived. And one of them, I mean, a woman called Germaine Thion, who was an ethnographer, um, they talked about their experience of how they would recite Moliere to try and keep each other awake and alive. And she actually wrote an opera, a prison opera, um, which she, you know, it wasn't really an opera. She would take existing tunes, but she wrote her own words. And for instruments, all the women had was their tin mug and a wooden spoon, and they would bang out the rhythm of these songs. And trying to understand how music was used as, as a way of keeping them alive and reminding them of their lives. And in the archives also, there are lots of recipes written down. And I thought, why are these women in prison writing recipes? Well, I, I've talked about it since with psychologists. Apparently, it's a very basic way of reminding you of your other life, your earlier life. Of course, they couldn't eat these foods. They were lucky if they had a bit of thin gruel and hard bread, like a rock and watery coffee. But they wrote out these fabulous French recipes from their childhood to remind them of a previous life. I mean, isn't that interesting that that's what you do in prison? So anyway, I think all the women who survived Ravensbrook and who came back and talked about it. So, I mean, I'm just in awe of their spirit. 
I don't need to ask you, did you go to Paris to research it? Um, but um, I can imagine you've spent quite a lot of time there. But do you feel it? Because when I'm ever with my obsession with, with your wartime Europe, whenever I am somewhere in Paris or somewhere that was occupied, um, I feel it. You know, I look at the cobbled streets and I imagine yes. the boots running down them. I imagine the, the, um, the girls too. surfing. I can feel it all around me. And I, yes. I remember I went to one village once Um I happened to be there on the 11th of November and they were having a celebration in the village and there was a party and um, and it was just incredible. And I just remember thinking all of these things that these, these people have been through. And at that point, that was 25 years ago. So there, there were survivors, obviously, of the Second World War there and, and, and it had been occupied in the Second World War. And it just just the feeling of history and the weight of history. We haven't, we don't have that in the UK no. because we have, it's been a long time since we've had invaders. Do you, do you feel that? Of how can you not? You're absolutely right. Every single cafe, because I mean, I did think of it constantly because Paris is so well preserved. If, if you go to other countries, they've been bombed and destroyed and, and rebuilt. I mean, Warsaw, for example, where I've been, the central square is completely rebuilt and it's a phony construction and I I can't really emote with that at all even though you go to a sort of grassy knoll where the Warsaw ghetto was but it's so hard to imagine but in Paris it's hardly changed because that was the deal that the French did that it wouldn't be bombed uh, although there were lots of shots fired so many street corners have pockmarked buildings you're right and in the last decade when they have finally come to terms with the role France played there are now brass plates on the wall saying 150 children from this school were taken as captives 150 Jewish children were taken from the school as captives. So they are really coming to terms with their history and owning up and admitting it, but only since 1995. And the place where most of the Jews were rounded up, the Velodrome d'Iver, the sports stadium, that's been knocked down because it's such a painful memory. That's where all 14,000 Parisian Jews were taken. But there is a, a, an extraordinary memorial there and a ceremony every July the 16th to remember it. So, I mean, I think the French can't be faulted for coming to terms now and and French history is being taught. So I think I was really lucky, actually, to catch this moment. I think seven or eight of the women I've interviewed have now died. And if I'd gone when they were in their 60s or 70s, they might not have spoken to me. They were trying to establish normalcy and to give their children a, safe, a feeling of safety and security. But as grandparents, when they were questioned by their grandchildren, they were prepared to open up. So I, I caught the women on the cusp of wanting to tell their stories. And, and that's what I love. I love interviewing old people who are looking back. And you frequently find that your youth is preserved in a very clear phase, whereas, um, you know, your middle age is, is often a blur. But those years when you did something extraordinary as you emerge from childhood into adulthood are very well preserved often. And, and I've, I, I love interviewing old, older women who remember that time. 
Me too. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I, I'm glad I got to ask my own grandmother, who was just in, the, in um, the north of England during the war. But when I say just, you know, she was giving birth in the middle of um, yeah. air raids, you know, with sirens going at home. And uh, I've always asked people uncomfortable questions maybe about their time during the war. And other people have sort of said, um, oh, no, don't ask them. They don't like to talk about it. But as soon as you ask, actually, they, they've, you know, been happy to open up. But I think yeah. you're right. There was a time that everyone thought well, it's better to brush that under the carpet. I remember having, I lived in Amsterdam for a while and I remember having an, an argument with a soon after that ex-boyfriend um, <laughs> outside Anne Frank's house. And he's saying that we shouldn't have this here. We shouldn't be remembering. We should just forget. And I was like, no, I think I, I think we need to remember it, it. You know, we're not blaming all the the Germans now. Certainly, you know, I love Germany. Spent spent a lot of time there, um, but we we do need to we do need to remember. I think. Yeah, just to put the other side of things, um, because I was interviewing a lot of old women who mostly didn't have email, and I had to make the appointments by phone. And my French is not exactly perfect. I often got it wrong and found they weren't expecting me at all. And then I just had a day to myself in Paris. <laughs> of all cities to have a day to myself, although, you know, I, I would sometimes be annoyed. Oh, my goodness, I've come for an appointment and I've mucked up and nobody's here. It's, it's actually no hardship. The shops in Paris are divine and so are the museums. And so of all places to have to spend a day kicking your heels until Eurostar takes you back. It's um, it, it was a fun book to research. I wish I could find another book that took me regularly to Paris. <laughs> I honestly, the the it's almost making me cry. I miss Paris so much and that that travel and especially almost solo yeah. travel when you're wandering around and you don't have much to do and your meetings being let down. I've had that experience in Paris many a time and uh, absolutely beautiful. I and I could talk to you for so long, but um, I need to wrap it up soon. Um, and I'm going to ask you my last question, um, which is always about music, actually. Um, because I do believe that music and travel often go hand in hand. If I were to ask you to uh, think of one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what is what is the memory that it conjures up? Oh, gosh. Um, I should have just one song, shouldn't I? I Actually, I do. Um, I have a son who's now um, 42, but... He was in the army and when he had to deploy to Iraq, he made me a mixtape um, and he had the same one because he said that he thought as he was walking the streets of Basra or Baghdad, it would be nice for me to know that he had the same tunes going on in his you know, headphones as I did. And, and the song that I always conjure from that time, actually, is um, from Mary Poppins, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, or, or any of the Mary Poppins songs, because um, he used to sit for hours with my youngest daughter and watching Mary Poppins, and it became a, a bit of a, a family favourite. And the idea of my soldier son walking the streets of Iraq listening to Mary Poppins, and I could listen to it too, and it somehow calmed my nerves that he would come back, and indeed he did. So it's it's a ridiculous piece of music, but on the other hand, I listen to it and I think, thank goodness he survived when 
it was really such a dangerous place to be. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Well, Lisa, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure. And we haven't even talked about India and Mother Teresa. Oh, no, don't. (laughs) I've got another 101 stories of that, but, you know. Oh, no, hang on. No, you know, you've got to tell me quickly about India and Mother Teresa. We can't miss that. Go on. (laughs) Oh, God, I don't know where to start. I mean, I went to India several times because I wrote a children's book about her in 1980. That was really my first book. So the publishers, after Christopher Hitchens wrote his groundbreaking book, they asked me to write a journalist book that said, you know, is he right on this? And and I found that so difficult because I simply did not want to attack this woman who for so many people was such an an important figure. On the other hand, the more I saw, the less comfortable I was. So I tried to write a sort of debate about what she'd done, uh, anchoring it in journalism and fact and not really getting too involved in in the rights and the wrongs. But then that turned into a Channel 4 film. And when Channel 4 made the film, they have this requirement that you always have to have somebody to take stills of of the film. It was called The Saint Making Business. So it was after her death. So I was given the task of following them around. And it was an amazing opportunity to go up into the Himalayas and meet the woman who claimed she'd had a miracle. So that was led on to the beatification of Mother Teresa. She's now been canonized as well. But anyway, one day as we were going over the Ganges, I saw a a poster saying Jessup's Engineering. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting picture to take. My daughter was about to become an engineer. Within minutes, the entire Indian army, it felt, had mobilized and they were going to arrest me because you're not allowed to take photographs of bridges. It's considered a sensitive installation. And I should have known that. But for about two hours, I was interrogated. And of course, my passport says journalist. And I really, really had visions of being in an Indian jail. I was interrogated in a room that was like a jail. And they told me why I'd committed this terrible crime, which was akin to spying, taking a photograph of a military installation. I didn't realize it was a military installation. Long story short, I was released, but they opened my camera. It was so long ago and they pulled out the reels of film. They threw the film into the Ganges. So I'd lost two days of of snaps. Um, And they gave me a very strict warning that if I did anything else again, it would be immediately jail. So, you know, I was quite scared and I learned my lesson. And what was the conclusion about Mother Teresa and her uh, activities? I think in a nutshell, when she started after partition, she was incredibly brave. I mean, I've also been to Albania and seen all of that background. So that's another story. Um, But I think initially what she did was extraordinary and dangerous and courageous. But I think as time went on, she became the image. And I think as time went on, she never changed. I mean, she always said our job is not to relieve 
the, the poverty of the beggars. Our job is to demonstrate Christ's love in action. So I think the media built her up into this great social worker who was going to change things. And actually, if you listen to what she was saying, she was simply an old fashioned Catholic. A lot of young people began to realize if I want to do something to change the world, I'm not going to join Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity because they're not there to change anything. She didn't want doctors. She didn't want nurses. She didn't want anyone who was going to change things. Mm -hmm. Her view was almost that death is a higher state than life. And therefore, if I can help you die, you're in a better place. She was turned into something by the media that she never really wanted to be. And by the time she died, that message was a bit old fashioned. Thank you so much for listening. In the pipeline, we have everyone from a Love Island contestant to Anthony Bourdain's right-hand woman. See you soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.